don't have anything. So, what does the emergency physician need to know? First of all, let's start with the case presentation. Um, 18 year old woman who sexually acted with two partners presents to the ED with three days of bilateral or abdominal pain, mild dysuria without frequency, has low grade, without low grade fever, oh, has low grade fever, but has no nausea or vomiting, no back pain, and no vaginal bleeding. Her temperature is slightly elevated, pulse may be slightly high for 18 year old, otherwise okay. She appears ill due to pain. Uh, her abdomen is bilateral lower abdominal tenderness, no upper. Uh, and it's uh, soft, there's no rebounder guarding, although with PID, rebounder guarding can certainly occur because you can get pelvic peritonitis. Uh, there's no CVA tenderness. Um, so here's her urine was sent by the, uh, by the nurse already. The UCG's negative, her urine comes back with a few white cells and a few epithelial cells. So uh, that's what you have at this point. You haven't done a pelvic exam, you haven't done an ultrasound, you're just seeing the patient, you have the urine sort of before you go in the room. Um, and you ask her about her, uh, could she have appendicitis? That's one of the biggest things. And so there's quite several studies from single center studies looking at patients who presented with lower abdominal pain who ended up having appendicitis. And they tended to have the classic presentation, though they had migration of the pain. It started periumbilical and moved. That's unusual for PID. Also, they tended, after a day or so, had nausea and vomiting, which is unusual. Although it's possible with PID, it's unusual. And the fever tends to be low-grade in both, and the white count doesn't help you. So that it, the history helps a lot, in the, so that most young women with appendicitis will have more of a classic presentation of migration of the pain. So what do you want to do at this point? You probably want to do a pelvic exam, right? Okay. Uh, you could get some blood tests, right? So but we're going to get to the, I'll get, bring out this case at the end and what happened to her. She didn't have a very good outcome despite getting the appropriate diagnosis and treatment. Um, so her urine may be contaminated, so uh, we may want to get a better specimen and get an in and out cath urine on her. So I'll come back to that case at the end, okay? So. Uh, one of the things you might want to make sure is you do a good quality pelvic exam, as this doctor is doing. <laughs> um, so, it's like a pelvic, triage. <laughs> pelvic and triage, right? So, what is PID? It's not just infection of the fallopian tubes. In fact, you can have PID without infection of the fallopian tubes because it's a continuum spectrum of an inflammatory disorder of the upper female genitrac, including endometritis, without salpingitis, and you could also include that tuberate abscess and pelvic peritonitis altogether. But it starts in the, you know, it starts in the vagina and cervix and, and goes up. So you tend to have endometritis first followed by salpingitis, but not always. That's followed by TOA maybe and maybe pelvic peritonitis too, okay? Uh, so it's very common, about one million are diagnosis in the United States every year. But the problem with this diagnosis of one million is that it's not all diagnosed by laparoscopy. So you're not having sure women really actually have it. Um, it's very important when evaluating the patient's risk for PAD and whether they're really at risk. So sexually active older adolescents and very young women like up to like 22 or so who, who are sexually active have a very high risk of presenting, of having PAD when they present with the classic symptoms. The problem is when you get to the a little older woman, let's say even 25 to 35, who's sexually active with one partner and you suspect they're monogamous, who has lower abdominal symptoms like PID, they 
have a high likelihood of not having it. And so you probably should not make a diagnosis without really a good history and physical, maybe imaging and things like that. And what happens to older women who are postmenopausal women who are sexually active? They can get PID too, but it's very, very rare. And I'll show you a slide at the end where they found it was very unusual. And so you probably should, if you see like a 55-year-old postmenopausal sexually active woman with classic symptoms and signs of PID, you're probably wrong. So you probably need a CAT scan to check for diverticulitis. Made an ultrasound, they probably need admission. And uh, if they have PID, which they can get in that age group, they probably need to have IV antibiotics and things. Um, so it's been shown pretty conclusively that PID does not occur, occur in women unless they're having sex. And how long back do you go? So it does not, it's been well studied in nuns. It never occurs in nuns. So a celibate woman can't get PID. The problem is, so the woman says, I haven't had sex for two years. She probably doesn't, can't have PID now, but are she really telling you the truth? I don't know about having sex or not. So remember that if some woman says she's not sexually active for a long time, you really should, don't make a diagnosis of PID unless you've like done a lot of other tests like CAT scans and look for something else, okay? Uh, there's also the thing about silent salpingitis. Um, so many women will have this. Even after completing a, what you think is appropriate treatment with PID, their symptoms are gone, they have a clinical cure. But if you sample their uh, fallopian tubes at laparoscopy or um, endometrial washings, at a, they can do that. You'll find still ongoing infection with no symptoms, and they're still damaging the tubes. And so there's something called silent salpingitis, which actually women can get without ever having symptoms. And that could lead to increased rate of infertility, ectopic pregnancy, and chronic pelvic pain, just like symptomatic PID. So the differential diagnosis of PID is pretty broad. Uh, the major difference is once you ruled out pregnancy is something like uh, appendicitis or chronic pelvic pain or endometriosis, probably the main things, uh, or some kind of ovarian cyst. Okay. And just showing a slide from Netter or Craig here showing a woman with PID. Uh, we used to, this used to be much more common when I was in training. I'll show you why in a minute, because gonorrhea has gone way down incidence. When gonorrhea was common when I was in training, uh, we used to see women would walk in like this, you know. <laughs> you could say, oh, she has the PID yeah, gate, right? PID shuffle. PID shuffle? <laughs> Chicago, too. Chicago? Okay. So just showing that. Uh, Pile salpings, showing the pile salpings and things of PID. So turns out uh, gonorrhea, the rate of gonorrhea in the United States has gone way down. Uh, when I was in training, was from like 71 to like counting residency, like 80, 80 or so. Gonorrhea was at its peak. We see gonorrhea all the time in the ED. I, I mean, as a doctor, just as a resident or a ED attending in my early in my career. Like every week, I would see several people with gonorrhea, and including males. You know, more common they'd come in with the. But nowadays, to, to really see a patient with gonorrhea in the ED is very unusual. Unlike chlamydia, look especially in women, has gone markedly up lately. Chlamydia. Now, this could be artifactual here too, because back when I was in training, the, there was a test for chlamydia on the cervix. You'd have to do a culture. Uh, and the culture is only about 70% sensitive done in a research lab. So in a regular lab, it's probably even less. So uh, there was a probably artificially low due to bad techniques. Now we have the PCR technique, which is even more sensitive than a culture, and it's only rare false positive. So some of this increase may be artifactual. Yes? So Dr. Burns, why do we do GC chlamydia um, in women? Why do we do the vaginal swab? Why can't we just do the urine? 
Um, yes, uh, in some uh, laboratories they'll allow. Our laboratory doesn't allow it, so they refuse to do it on that specimen. It's still a research technique, because uh, no, because you have to. Uh, because sometimes it's not in there. It's only on the cervix of vagina. It's not in the urine. Okay, so it's, you shouldn't be ordering on urine for females. Yeah, we do have a, at Longish Memorial, they do GC chlamydia on female. They do the urine test. It's the same test for female. So there's a low sensitivity because you're not actually sampling the cervix of vagina. Okay, so I wouldn't recommend it. And our lab refuses to accept specimens on your females for urine for that test. They won't do it. Um, so what is PID? It's not just an infection of the upper genital tract due to the STD organism. In fact, you don't even have to be present. Although they often are present to start the infection, they often are not even present by the time the woman comes in. So it's polymicrobial, including like bowel flora and vaginal flora, anaerobes, including bacteroides, E. coli, they're all, they're all in there in the PID, with or without the STD pathogens, which are often gone by the time the woman comes in, even though they were initially there. So it's very important to look for bacterial vaginosis, which is found in the majority of women with PID. So vaginal, bacterial vaginosis is not just an infection with Gardnerella, as some people think. Actually, Gardnerella is a marker that it's there, but it's just a marker. It's not the cause of it. So it's, what happens is something changes the uh, microflora in the vagina, and it could be an antibiotic you took for something, uh, but the normal lactobacilli-dominant vaginal flora replaced with this anaerobic-dominant microflora, and there's increasing concentrations in a Gardnerella genital mycoplasmas, which aren't susceptible to, to many antibiotics except azithromycin and anaerobic gram-negative rods. And so what happens with these, these new bacteria-produced substances which degrade the mucus plug on the cervix? Okay, so the mucus plug is gone, so the bacteria that are there can now rise and go, especially chlamydia or GC that might be there, can go up into the, into the uterus. Also, uh, that degrades these antimicrobial agents that are normally secreted by the good bacteria they die off and you, these bad bacteria prevent them. And so this, then you get the STD pathogens like gonorrhea and chlamydia and maybe other bacteria going up in the uterus, okay? So is it, this is a new organism that's been described in the past like 20 years called Mycoplasma genitalium. And <clears throat> it's been associated with PID uh, many times, probably about 10 or 50% of isolates will have this in their like uterus on sampling or in the fallopian tubes. And it tends to cause a low-grade infection, and it's not very susceptible to the tetracyclines or the quinolones. I'll mention more about that later. So if you look at uh, controlled trials of PID diagnosis, you should always look to see whether every woman had a laparoscopy and endometrial sampling, because all the good studies, they take, the OB doctors have done this, they, to put in their study to see if somebody really has PID, every patient is assessed with laparoscopy, often with fallopian tube biopsy and endometrial washings too. If you don't have that in the study, there's no way to tell whether the woman actually had PID. This just shows laparoscopic evidence of salpingitis. So what about the pitfalls in diagnosis? The CDC has minimum criteria, which include four things altogether in the woman, lower abdominal tenderness, adnexal tenderness, cervical motion tenderness, and a sexually active young woman. And all four of those things are present. The CDC says you have PID. 
but they've been shown by numerous studies to have low sensitivity and specificity when you take all those together. But the CDC says this because it's for research. It's like if you're not going to do the laparoscopy, if you're going to include people in a PID study and report on them in epidemiologic studies, you have to have some criteria. So if you're not doing laparoscopy, this is what they use, but numerous obstetricians have done studies showing that these, having all these together has low sensitivity and low specificity. But they have shown, the CDC as well as other sources have shown, that the presence of abnormal vaginal discharge or purulent cervical discharge is found in nearly all women with PID. So if you have a woman who presents like PID, positive pelvic exam, pelvic tenderness, et cetera, but there's no, there's no uh, vaginal discharge and no vaginal leukocytes and their cervix is normal, you should, have a, you should think of another diagnosis before you treat them for PID. They still could have it, but it'd be very rare. So it's been shown that historical variables and clinical findings are not very useful in predicting whether a young woman who's sexually active with lower abdominal pain actually has PID based on laparoscopic, laparoscopic with biopsy fallopian tubes, okay? Uh, in fact, I'll show you a slide showing how you, you can't even tell the difference. Uh, fever is not too common. So if somebody has a high fever, it might be in favor of something else, okay? Same with the white count. It can be high or low with PID. Uh, also, it's fact that a woman can actually have lower abdominal pain, but the other symptoms of lower genital tract symptoms are so severe she doesn't even complain to you about the lower abdominal pain. For example, there may be a lot of vaginal discharge, a lot of excessive bleeding, et cetera, low back pain, urinary frequency, and so she might not complain of vaginal, of lower abdominal pain unless you asked her. And on the pelvic exam, though, there might be some adnexal tenderness, uh, but uh, sometimes the main complaint isn't abdominal pain. So this is something that you should see in almost every case of, if you do a good pelvic exam with PID, is some mucopurulent cervicitis. Here's a bad case, here's a more minor case, but the cervix is red, inflamed, and there's discharge from the cervix. That implies the uterus is, has endometritis. And so um, this is what you would try to get the PCR test on for the um, gonorrhea and chlamydia, and not the vaginal swab, which is done for a different reason, okay? So if you have no vaginal discharge, your vaginal swab that you get for a wet man or gram scene has no white cells, and there's no cervical discharge, you should think of another diagnosis. So for diagnosis in the ED, um, because history and physical is not very good at diagnosing PID, digging it from something else, is you should uh, look at the cervix carefully, try to get some kind of a culture of it, you should do a, either a, a gram stain or a wet mount. We do gram stains at our facility, but wet mounts are some other wet mount you could do at other facilities of vaginal excretions looking to see that there's more leukocytes than there are epithelial cells. So by definition, if there's more than one leukocyte per epithelial cell, there's vaginal inflammation, which is seen in almost every patient with PID. So we usually obtain our red swab for the gram stain, not culture necessarily, because that shows Canada, which look like giant gram-positive cocci on the gram stain, it shows clue cells, which are the epithelial cells will have all these stained gram-negative uh, bacteria on them, so you can diagnose bacterial vaginitis, and it shows you the number of leukocytes, so it's important to get that test result uh, to see if you really are having vaginitis with that PID. So you'd also consider evaluating, if there is a vaginal discharge, evaluating for other causes of vaginitis. Uh, you might want to check the vaginal pH. You might check for clue cells as checked in our gram stain. You might do a whiff test. 
which where you take a wet mount and you add the potassium hydroxide and you have an amine smell, a bad smell. Um, and then you could also look for modal trichobonus or uh, what we do on our test is they look for the, uh, the DNA or DFA testing or DNA of trichomonas on a test and not looking for modal uh, trichomonas. And then you would want to get your nucleic acid amplification testing or DNA tests of the piece of the cervix, the cervix for GC and chlamydia, which is more sensitive than culture. Here's an example just of some normal, uh, this isn't necessarily with PID, but normal vaginal epithelial cells on the upper left. And if you saw this with, but there were a lot more white cells than epithelial cells, you might think there's vaginitis. Here's some clue cells on, uh, on the upper right with the wet mounts showing the epithelial cells are coated with bacteria. Here's the gram stain, which you might see an R gram stain at UCI. And then there's... gram stain show It'll show the epithelial cells here coated with bacteria, gram-negative cocobacilli. So we don't actually look at it, but the lab will report that. We'll report like They probably won't report, I don't know if they report clue cells, yeah. but they'll report that the epithelials are coated with uh, gram-negative cocobacillar organisms, okay? Then in ba Canada, which isn't necessarily associated with PID, they have hyphae with the KOH prep, and then here's a, this isn't working anymore, but the, uh, the modal trophozoites of trichomonas may be seen in a wet mount, and we don't do that test here, we do the DNA test, okay? Which is more sensitive. So here's what you might see on a patient with PID of a wet mount. Here's some epithelial cells here. But look at, these are all leukocytes. There's m certainly more than one leukocyte per epithelial cell. This would be really in favor of having PID if you saw this on a vaginal wet mount. And again, the cervical discharge, you want to make sure you get the test on that for the PCR for chlamydia and gonorrhea. So here's what you might, sometime you can't tell if it's that yellow or you're colorblind or something, and you get the swab out, and here's the, this is supposed to be, there is actually that, cervical secretions on that, but they're clear. This is the mucopyrrolite exudate from the cervix. So if it looks like that on your swab, it's not normal, and you probably should test that. This is from the cervix, not from the vagina, okay? So, um, for diagnosis, so if your cervix is normal on exam, visually, and there's no white blood cells on the microscopy of vaginal secretions, you should really, they still could have PAD. It makes it much less likely and should always check for an alternative diagnosis, which could be a better history and physical only, or it may need some imaging for diverticulitis or something like that, or pelvic ultrasound. It's not clear, but you should probably not tell the woman you have an STD. I said, I'm going to treat you for a possible pelvic infection. You need careful follow-up. Follow, call me back in two days for the results of your tests. I'm not quite sure what it is, what we're going to treat for an infection or something like that. I probably wouldn't say you have PID without these findings. Uh, you might write it on the chart, but I probably wouldn't tell the person. CBC, uh, blood tests are not very useful because they're, they overlap too much with other diseases which mimic it. The ESR and the SED rate are commonly elevated in the things that mimic it too. They're not useful. And it's recommended you should do an HIV test or tell the woman she should get one when you ever diagnose PID or any STD. So there was a very large study called the PEACH study. It's a, uh, the largest randomized trial ever conducted in North America on PID diagnosis and treatment. It was done at many academic hospitals, like seven or eight, including some community uh, centers, too, that weren't EDs. Uh, hundreds of patients, like 850 or something like that, and had several studies out of this. Uh, <clears throat> they, their main purpose of this study, which was published in uh, usually around 2001, 2004, they had several studies out of this, was to compare inpatient to outpatient treatment. 
which they found outpatient treatment was fine as well as in, it was as equal to inpatient treatment. But they also, in selected women, but they also looked at diagnostic features. And every woman had a laparoscopy that entered into the study with endometrial sampling. Every woman. Uh, and so, um, and they, but the problem is they did exclude severe, they were looking at outpatient treatment. So they did exclude people that were really ill from the study. Okay? So what they found was that uh, the presence of adnatural tenderness was the sine qua non of having PID, not CMT, which was not present in some people with laparoscopically confirmed PID. Adnexal tenderness, which is overly sensitive though, but if you don't have adnexal tenderness, but you have the other findings, you should also question the diagnosis. So adnexal tenderness was, was the most sensitive physical exam that they, finding they had for this, greatest sensitivity. Uh, having fever and leukocytosis was of no use in making a diagnosis of PID. And it turns out many patients who had classic symptoms and signs of PID did not have it when they did laparoscopy and endometrial sampling. And they, had, they didn't even know what they had. Who knows? They had pelvic pain. Um, also, if you were able to get see the chlamydia and gonorrhea from the cervix on a test, that was highly predictive of, of that your lower abdominal pain was due to PID on laparoscopy. And essentially what they concluded from the PEACH study, these multiple academic obstetricians from multiple centers, uh, concluded that um, if the woman's at risk for a PID, means she's a young woman who's sexually active and has adnexal tenderness, and there's no other obvious diagnosis, you should start empiric treatment, okay? And not just wait for the culture results. So what about blood tests? And um, are they useful? And probably not useful in ruling in, maybe useful in ruling out. Uh, there were some family practice doctors that did a clinical query where they looked at the literature, graded several studies on the basis of the level of evidence. Uh, they were already published, like usually in the 80s and 90, early 90s. There was uh, three or four studies that compared different blood tests, in, but including one vaginal swab here, vaginal white cells, for ruling out PID. And they concluded, based on the level of evidence, and these studies weren't that necessarily that good because not all patients got laparoscopy, but if you had a, a SED rate, not just normal, but under 15, white blood cell under 10 and CRP under 5, and I'm not sure what units they use because that's elevated for us, but they had different units there and vaginal white cells under four uh, that was in these, looking at these three different or four different studies they were looking at in the past, uh, there were 80s and 90s, not a single patient had PID that had all these tests negative, okay? But that's one person's opinion, okay? So it, having the test being negative is very useful in saying maybe it's alternative diagnosis or nothing serious. But I can't say that if these are negative, you don't really have PID. But the fact that they're positive has no difference in, in, in ruling in PID. Now, here's one study from 1980 in which they had several hundred women. They all underwent laparoscopy to diagnose the PID, okay? All of them. And they found uh, that the blue bar, the dark blue bars are the ones that laparoscopy proven PID and the light blue bars without. There's no difference. So these all women thought to have PID before laparoscopy. They all had the, you know, fever was the same. You can't tell the difference. The SED rates were about the same too. See how difficult it is to make a diagnosis of PID. I'm almost done here. What about imaging? Um, for PID, pelvic ultrasound, although there are often positive findings of inflammation, it's not too useful for ruling in or ruling out the diagnosis. It's more useful looking for something different. 
Okay, so it may be useful. And I would say it's not mandatory that all women with suspected PID need an ultrasound. It's, I may do it, some other doctors may do it. It's not mandatory, okay? It depends on your clinical suspicion for other diseases or tubivarian abscess or something. Um, I'd be more concerned that they might have diverticulitis if they're older women or appendicitis if they're younger. You might need a CAT scan or ultrasound for that, but it isn't mandatory to do imaging. Uh, let's look at PID in the older woman who's postmenopausal but sexually active. People have looked at that and found that it does occur. It's very uncommon. So your pretest probability of it is low. And so your clinical diagnosis is usually wrong. So you better do some imaging. So you probably should do a CAT scan in a 55-year-old postmenopausal woman with suspected PID. You'll find they probably have diverticulitis instead. But uh, it does occur. PID does occur in sexually active women of all ages but it's much less common in the elderly. Um, so let's see the bottom line, who to treat. Uh, these are the criteria that experts choose. So you're seeing a young sexually active woman in the ED, young, okay? Not, this doesn't apply to all women, uh, who are sexually active, who have pelvic or lower abdominal pain, and you don't think there's another cause based on whatever test you do. If they have two minimum criteria, it's recommended to do empiric treatment. This is what the experts recommend. They have some sign of lower genital tract inflammation, okay? Cervicitis or leukorrhea. And they have this too. They have pelvic organ tenderness, okay? Then you should do empiric treatment. So that's what some experts recommend. Some people might say all you need is the pelvic organ tenderness, but you're going to treat a lot of people that never have it, okay? So uh, it turns out that um, some of the people who have cervical, who have lower genital tract inflammation alone and no symptoms or signs of PA, they actually have histologic evidence of, of endometritis on endometrial biopsy. But it turns out that when you treat these women, they, you can treat them with a short course of treatment, not the full PAD treatment, and they have a pretty good outcome, okay? Um, so what about outpatient treatment? Uh, you can always look this up, but I want to tell you that the CDC recommended drugs are really bad, and it's well known to experts. And so, um, you could follow the guidelines, and that's fine, but they're not, they don't work too well. So the current recommendation for outpatient treatment of PID is ceftriaxone, uh, IV or IM, 250. That's very good for gonorrhea. It just cures it, one dose. The problem is it has to do with the other organisms. So uh, the CDC uh, uh, and other organizations recommend doxycycline for 14 days with or without metronidazole. Many experts recommend adding metronidazole anyway because there's commonly anaerobes. Uh, it's not mandatory, but it turns out that if you treat people with this and do uh, laparoscopy like a month later, a lot of them still have salpingitis with organisms you can isolate. And so there's a pretty low clinical cure rate and microbiologic cure rate. And some of the people that are clinically cured, that is, they're all healthy, they feel great, you can still isolate chlamydia from their fallopian tubes after treatment is done. And so some people don't like doxycycline for chlamydia. It's recommended by the CDC for large populations because it's very inexpensive and low side effects. So it's perfectly acceptable, but you don't have to do that. You can do something else. Um, so you can substitute for the gonorrhea. You can give stafoxidin plus probenicid, and that has some anaerobic coverage. And that's perfectly acceptable in RD. We have uh, stafoxidin on our formulary. You can do that instead of ceftriaxone. It's not necessarily any better, but it does add some anaerobic coverage, at least for one dose, followed by the doxy and the metro, with or without the metronidazole. So many experts uh, in GYN as well as in ID think the doxy and metronidazole is suboptimal therapy, okay? 
but it's certainly acceptable because the CDC recommends it. So alternatives which have been well studied but are not were listed as alternatives by the CDC is after giving the single dose cephalosporin is to discharge them on uh, augmented plus doxycycline. That works pretty well too. But it tends to be more expensive than the doxycycline alone. Remember, so that's why the CDC isn't saying it's a first choice. CDC wants things to be cheap to give around wide population, including underdeveloped countries, right? Also, uh, giving azithromycin one gram, the first dose and the second dose of one gram in a week is effective instead of doxycycline, but not a Z-pack. You should give a whole dose in a week later, okay? Not a whole Z-pack. But the CDC, that's alternative, not primary, because it's much more expensive than doxycycline. You could also give levofloxacin or ofloxacin plus metronidazole. Those are the two cephalospor, the two quinolones, in addition to moxifloxacin, which cover chlamydia. Okay, they cover chlamydia. And my personal choice is if somebody's being discharged with PID um, after their first dose of ceftriaxone, and I think they're fairly sick, I always would recommend giving them levofloxacin and metronidazole uh, because you're going to be treating better coverage of the anaerobes and the E. coli and things as well as chlamydia with uh, levofloxacin or ofloxacin. You can give moxifloxacin alone. We don't have that in our formulary, but it's like one drug, one dose a day. Uh, it's effective against almost everything except MRSA, but it's, it's uh, too expensive to list in most books as a primary treatment because it's going to cost you like 120 bucks for your 14-day course of 14 pills. Uh, it's, very, it's often recommended that you should add an anaerobic drug if you're not giving metronidazole. So for a week long treatment metronidazole? No, it probably would be 14 days. 14 days. But possibly shorter could work, but it hasn't been studied. So we don't really know the answer. Uh, unless you're treating cervicitis, that could be okay. Now, I'm almost done here. So zithromycin, many experts favor this. It's better, it's more active than it's chlamydia, but it's not recommended by the CDC as first choice because it's too expensive to lose in large populations. It's also more effective against other bacteria, and it works against these genital mycoplasmas that, that I mentioned earlier that, uh, that doxycycline and some of the quinolones don't work for. Um, so many women who are clinically cured, they feel better, they feel well, will still have isolation of maybe this mycoplasma, anaerobes, and chlamydia from their fallopian tubes or, or uterus later. Okay, so they're getting silent salpingitis. We don't know how many that is. Uh, so it's also been studied, the adherence to oral therapy has been studied. Actually, they studied it mainly among lower income uh, African-American women in like Atlanta, so maybe they have a low chance of taking their drugs, but they found that only 70% of prescribed doses were taken. They checked it by the amount of times they opened the cap, an electronic cap or something, and they found that it would favor ad adherence to therapy is if you had, a, if your woman had a job, if she didn't use hard liquor and didn't have any bleeding during sex. I'm not sure why that second one would favor them being adherent, but um, so indications for hospitalization for PID, if you can't exclude a surgical emergency. In the modern times with PID, we usually, we're not going to admit somebody probably for without doing a CAT scan anyway, so you probably eliminated the surgical emergencies. They're pregnant. Can pregnant women get PID? Yes, but probably not past the, four, it's very rare, but probably not past the 14th week or the 10th to 14th week because then you, have a, you can't get any bacteria or anything going past the cervix. Um, if they don't respond to the outpatient treatment, they can't follow up or they're vomiting a lot, severe illness, or they have an abscess, they should be admitted. Uh, what if they're admitted? Um, they usually get cefoxin or 
set T10 plus doxycycline. And you could alternatively give them Clinda, another anaerobic drug, plus ceftriaxone or cefotaxime. You could also give ampicillin, sulbactam plus doxycycline. You could substitute azithromycin for doxycycline if you want a better coverage for chlamydia or genital mycoplasmas. And if you're not going to use uh, clindamycin up there, you'd probably, you could consider another anaerobic drug if you're not using the anaerobic, anti-anaerobic cephalosporins, which are cefoxin and cefotetan. So generally what somebody's, what they would do in OB or GYN, if they're admitted for this, they usually get better on this after about three days. They're discharged on the, on like doxycycline or something, which then may be inferior. But um, it's important to remember that these regimens here cover uh, aerobic bacteria and anaerobic bacteria, not just the STD pathogens. And uh, lastly, I'll talk about Fitzhugh-Curtis syndrome, since it's very rare, but it often comes up, is who was Fitzhugh-Curtis? Was it one doctor? Three doctors. It was two doctors. And they weren't even the first one to describe this. Unfortunately, Dr. Stejano here in 1920 in Spanish described this syndrome with laparoscopic, but he gets no credit for it because he didn't publish it in English. So uh, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Arthur Curtis at Northwestern and Thomas Fitzhugh at Penn independently described uh, Fitzhugh-Curtis syndrome due to gonococcal perihepatitis in JAMA in different years. Um, and so it's sort of named after, after them. Uh, it turns out it, it's been proven to occur in men by a laparoscopic diagnosis uh, in dis men with disseminated GC. So it is possible for a man to get Fitzhugh-Curtis, but they have to have a disseminated GC, okay, which is pretty rare. Uh, so now it turns out it's more common with chlamydia because gonorrhea has gone down. So Fitzhugh-Curtis syndrome uh, is more commonly due to chlamydia. If you had a test question, it should be chlamydia now. But in 1930, maybe 1980, it was more commonly gonorrhea. So what happens, you get violin string adhesions on laparoscopy. You see these between the abdominal wall, the peritone visceral parietal peritoneum, and the liver, dome of the liver. And it could cause right upper quadrant pain and tenderness. Uh, pleuritic pain, it could mimic like lower level pneumonia, good splinting with good pain in your shoulder maybe, it could mimic a, uh, cholecystitis. But all these women have some degree of PID at the same time. So they should have overt PID like lower abdominal pain and tenderness, but it, there may be less severe pain there than the right upper quadrant. So um, it often can have a friction rub over the liver, which sounds like you're walking on freshly fallen snow. And here's what it would look like on laparoscopy, violent string adhesions between the uh, capsule of the liver and the abdominal wall, okay? So it's interesting, but it's pretty uncommon. And you treat it the same as regular PID. So we go back to our young woman. I said this before, how should this woman be managed? Okay, so she uh, had a complete pelvic exam. She had collections of the cervix and the vagina. Her cervix was irritated or red with mucopus and that was sent off for chlamydia and GC. She had a gram scene of the vagina which showed leukocytes in excess of epithelial cells and they found clue cells, no candida or anything. So she underwent an ED bedside transvaginal ultrasound, was strangely unremarkable. Uh, and she was treated with cefoxidin, uh, IV, and probenicid one gram in the ED, sent home on doxy and metronidazole. With careful instructions, he said he would carefully follow up and follow our instructions. She could afford antibiotics. So she was instructed to follow up in one or two weeks, return if not getting better. She didn't follow up. She returned to the ED three weeks later and was found to have a tuber variant abscess and admitted for IV antibiotics, eventually got better. And she, so her cervix was positive for chlamydia and negative for GC. So even when the woman promised us she would do well, she didn't take her, she didn't really, she said she took the therapy, 
but she didn't follow up as directed. So indicating maybe she was unreliable and maybe she should have been admitted, but you can't admit everybody for this. So here's some selected references. Okay. Any questions? Yes. Uh, has the use of PET CT been studied for picking up the uh, No. Uh, that's probably overkill. There's <clears throat> lots of radiation. It's more than a regular CAT scan. And you have to drink this awful tasting radioactive glucose. And um, that would be an interesting research study to do, I suppose. But you probably have to get some funding for it and have a careful uh, consent forms to say that you're getting, the woman's getting a lot of radiation. Laparoscopy is probably pretty safe. So uh, at our facility here, our gynecologist, especially if you go to the attending, attending level for the consult or the senior resident, the R4, they usually would go to laparoscopy right from the ED to an inpatient to diagnose it. Whereas the R2s or something or R1s aren't sure what to do or, you know, so they, they're pretty aggressive on laparoscopy. That's probably what you should do. Because you can also see other diagnoses that are GYN diagnoses in there too. Okay. Any Thanks other so questions? Friends. Okay. okay. Continue on with Dr. Fox. Let's take a